What up, everybody? Just a little reminder that the St. Dymphna's Playbook book is available wherever you get your books and ebooks. You can head on over to Ave Maria Press's website and use the code BEWELL, all one word, to get 20% off. Go get your copy now. Thomas Merton once said, God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, but I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you, and I hope that I have that desire in all that I am doing. Welcome to the 128th episode of St. Dymphna's Playbook, the SDP, if you want to be cool, a production of the Grexley Podcast Network. My name is Tommy. I'm a cradle Catholic, a marriage and family therapist, a husband and father of five boys, four on earth and one in heaven. Love you, Luke. And I'm here to fill the void of Catholic conversations about mental health because I want us all to remember that during these times when we find it difficult to pray or even love God because of all we're going through, simply having the desire to do so can be a beautiful act of faith. We like to kick it off around here with a quick refresh of our notifications. It's time for St. Dymphna's Mentions. We've talked quite a bit on this podcast about the mental health experiences of teens as they continue to move through this pandemic, but a recent article suggests that we may be missing the most obvious reason for their emotional distress. We'll go with the Washington Post for some thoughts. Teen mental health is a major concern for today's parents, and for good reason. More than one in three high schoolers say they felt persistent sadness or hopelessness, and roughly one in five reports having seriously considered suicide. Many of us are searching for answers, but a major culprit is hiding in plain sight. This generation of teens is the most sleep-deprived population in human history. You read that correctly. No group has ever slept as little as the modern adolescent. 70% of young kids and 65% of adults get healthy sleep, but by their senior year, only about 15% of high schoolers do. The average high schooler sleeps six and a half hours a night when they optimally need nine, and one in five teens sleeps five or fewer hours per night. Studies connecting sleep loss and poor mental health fill stacks of scientific journals. Adolescents who sleep fewer than eight hours hours a night are more likely to report symptoms of depression. One analysis found that underslept teens get six to seven hours a night were 17% more likely to think about hurting themselves than those sleeping eight. And in sleeping five hours a night, it made them 81% more likely to consider self-harm. Oh my goodness, back to me. Difficulty with sleeping is one of the symptoms that cuts across every single mental health experience. And oftentimes, it's the one symptom we can look to if we want to pinpoint the moment when things started getting worse. So what can we do to get things back on track? Back to the article. Schools should start their days later and reduce homework. Tech companies should be regulated and held accountable for responsible design. Yes, these systemic shifts will take time, but families can also protect sleep at home right away starting tonight. Research ties family rules and healthy sleep routines to a host of positive outcomes. In a study of more than 15,000 middle and high schoolers, those with bedtimes of 10 p.m. or earlier were 24% less likely to suffer from depression and 20% less likely 
likely to have suicidal ideation than those with bedtimes of midnight or later. Parents often underestimate their influence, but what they say and do matters. Start by modeling good habits as a family. Set clear device off hours and reasonable bedtimes and encourage simple and powerful practices such as getting five to ten minutes of morning sun, even on a cloudy day, which strengthens the body's natural sleep rhythms. So back to me. Let's all work together to do our part here, both for our children, our communities, and ourselves. So each episode, I'm going to introduce you to a saint who can help us along our journey with mental health and wellness as Catholics. It's called Friend Request. And today I'm going to introduce you to St. Ignatius of Laconi. Born in 1701 in present-day Italy, Ignatius was the second of seven children born to poor parents that were peasants. He was given the name Francis at baptism because his mother had begged for the saint's intercession during her difficult pregnancy. He grew up working in the fields to support his parents, but came down with a serious illness when he was just 17 years old. He made a pledge to enter religious life if he recovered, and he did indeed recover, but his parents needed his support, and so he went back to working in the fields. Three years later, he was riding a horse that panicked and sped away with him on the horse's back. He prayed for St. Francis to come to his aid, and once again during this event, uh, well, he prayed for him once again during this event, and once he was safely off the horse, he decided that he had to make good on his previous pledge. He was initially turned down from joining the Capuchins because of his health, um, but he asked three influential friends to flex their influence, and after they did so, he was promptly admitted. Funny how that works. He was appointed the Quester of Alms, which was a fancy word for the beggar of the order, and continued to do this even after he became blind in 1779. One cool story involved Ignatius avoiding asking a corrupt moneylender for alms. He was eventually forced to by his superior, and he approached the man and gave him an opportunity to make a donation. The guy hands Ignatius a sack of money, but when Ignatius lays the sack down at the guy's feet, blood pours out and the guy takes off running. Absolute king level stuff right there. We like to close out this part of the podcast with a prayer. O God, who led St. Ignatius to the height of holiness along the paths of humility, innocence, and charity toward others, grant that by imitating his virtues, we may put charity on earth into practice, in deeds, and in truth. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. And now you can't do therapy over Twitter, but I'm happy to take your tweets and help you explore a bit in the hopes of finding a light in the darkness. It's time for Twitter therapy. Dorothy gets us started. My husband has endured years of multiple medical complications. In the past eight to 10 weeks, he's getting extremely weak and sleeps continuously 15 plus hours at a time. I feel caught between waiting at home for him to wake up and spend a few moments with him and shriveling up from lack of anything to do. I'm 63 and recently retired, but when I worked, I was both a caregiver and a breadwinner. I feel very lonely, and how can I help myself? Well, let's start by joining in prayer for Dorothy, for her husband, and everyone walking through a similar journey. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. 
Thank you so much for this question, Dorothy. It's such a hard experience to walk through having to care for a loved one, only to find ourselves feeling lonely and not knowing how to take care of ourselves while we take care of another. We're going to get some thoughts from Wellness Every Day to get us started. Many caregivers are much more lonely, isolated, or disconnected than we realize. This is caused by a withdrawal from their previous routines, lifestyle, and social activities in order to focus on their family member or other care recipient. Often, caregivers can feel like they cannot set aside their caregiving responsibilities to connect with their friends as they used to. This is particularly the case for family caregivers, such as a spouse or a daughter. This can lead to loneliness and depression. It's important to be on the lookout for social isolation in caregivers, and here are some things to consider. Have I stopped my usual social activities and routines? Do I seem to have dropped all other responsibilities outside of caregiving? Do I see friends outside of their home often? Do I complain that my family members aren't helping enough? Am I always tired or worried? So back to me, I think your mention of shriveling up out of lack of anything to do fits in with these questions about experiencing social isolation from caregiving. And now it's time to focus on what we can do about it. Back to wellness every day. Social connection is essential for everyone, caregivers included. It is important for caregivers to look for or create opportunities for a temporary respite from their duties in order to foster their connection to other others. These are some wellness strategies for caregivers. Number one, respite care. Periods of respite care can allow a caregiver to focus on their own personal needs without worrying about the safety of their care recipient. Respite services are typically available from home care agencies or via local programs. However, caregivers may also find that friends or family members are able to assist them in caregiving duties from time to time, allowing them the time to focus on their own well-being. Next, join a caregiver support group. Local support groups or online support forms may help caregivers find common ground with other caregivers in a similar situation and offer a feeling of community in the midst of isolation. Number three, reconnecting with their interests. Caregivers can use the time that you do have for themselves to participate in activities that make you feel renewed. Involvement in their own interests may help caregivers feel connected to their sense of self and help keep them in touch with friends and loved ones. And number four, talking to a therapist. Sometimes caregivers need more specialized support than a caregiver group can give, especially if they're experiencing depression or anxiety. Professional counselors are excellent resources who can help you better manage the caregiver role. And please know that we'll be praying for you. Anonymous is up next. One topic I haven't seen but I'm always looking for is how to better support a good friend or a partner who is struggling. A specific example might be a friend with OCD whose rituals seem to include religious participation. How to sort out the good of going to mass and participating in prayer with a boyfriend or good friend from the concern that you are perhaps supporting the ritual more than the right. Let's begin by praying for Anonymous, for Anonymous's friend, and everyone wanting to know how best to help someone experiencing OCD. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Thank you so much for wanting to know how best to support your friend or partner. It's such a blessing to hear that you're wanting to help out. Helping someone with OCD can be extremely difficult because we naturally want to provide reassurance that everything is going to be okay, but that can often be the exact thing someone experiencing OCD doesn't need. It can actually reinforce the intrusive thoughts that lead to the compulsive behaviors. In the case you mentioned, participating in religious rituals in a manner that doesn't line up with the experiences of most of the faithful. We're going to get some helpful tips from scrupulosity.com on where to start. 
First, don't brush it off. Even if you don't know much about religious OCD, don't brush it off, minimize it, or try to label it as merely a spiritual issue. Religious OCD is an emotional and mental health issue with many layers involved. Second, do listen and offer support. Just because we don't understand what someone is going through doesn't mean we can't support them or be a non-judgmental listening ear. Number three, don't pressure. Please, please avoid this one at all costs. Don't be the person who Googles scrupulosity and then concludes, oh, that's what Joe has. Let's convince him that he has scrupulosity so he can fix himself. Number four, do ask questions and provide appropriate feedback. When we talk about how to help someone with religious OCD, there's a better approach than bluntly saying you have OCD. Try asking thoughtful questions about the person's understanding of God. Questions such as, do you think God is the kind of God that would require such severe self-sacrifice and misery? Or do you think God is really playing around with your salvation by giving you assurance one day and causing you to question your salvation the next? These questions will help develop an awareness of the deeper issue. While you don't want to pressure your loved one into admitting that they have religious OCD, look for these right moments to pause and ask, are you sure that's from God? Or have you considered religious OCD? Next, don't get sucked into reassurance-seeking cycles. People with religious OCD tend to fall into reassurance-seeking cycles in which they can try to self-medicate their anxiety levels by turning to others for reassurance. Someone who struggles with knowing whether they're saved may go to a trusted friend and ask, do you think I'm really saved? No matter how many times they receive a reassuring response, they continue to question, but how do I know? The problem with this cycle is that it never ends and doesn't promote healing. The family member or friend becomes a crutch for the person's OCD instead of helping them to reevaluate their underlying mindset. Okay, so back to me. I think these tips are super helpful, especially these questions like, are you sure that's from God? Or have you considered religious OCD when it comes up at an appropriate time? Most of us haven't even heard of or considered religious OCD in the past, and learning about it can be super helpful because we can finally put a name to the thoughts that have been causing us so much anxiety and shame, and we can finally start to move toward wellness through very effective evidence-based treatment. And once an individual realizes and accepts that they're living with religious OCD, trusted friends and family members can help to label thoughts and ideas as intrusive thoughts or obsessions when things come up. The feeling like one has to pray the rosary again and again because we may have forgotten a Hail Mary. A trusted friend may be able to say, this sounds like an intrusive thought, or even this sounds like the OCD talking if the friend is open to that. Thank you for being a good friend and know that we'll be praying for you. Allie wraps us up. I was wondering if you could discuss driving OCD and how to heal from it. Sometimes it takes me an hour to drive what should be a 15-minute drive because I feel the need to go back and check if I hit someone even though I know I didn't. Am I just crazy or is there hope? I've never heard of anyone else dealing with this. Let's join together in prayer for Allie for peace, healing, and for her to be able to find a community of support. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. 
I'm so glad you sent this question in and let me start by saying yes. This form of OCD is actually quite common. I've seen many people who are going through this exact experience and yes, there's absolutely hope. We'll start with a little bit from Manhattan CBT to help us better understand what is most commonly known as hit and run OCD. Hit and run OCD, sometimes known as driving OCD, is a subtype of obsessive compulsive disorder that involves obsessions around running someone over without realizing it. The anxiety caused by this type of OCD can be profound. It has led people to file police reports, listen to ambulance radio calls, or drive around for hours looking for the person they may have hit. It leads some people to stop driving altogether. Hit and run OCD is sometimes considered a form of responsibility OCD, a name for OCD cases when the patient feels overly responsible for their actions affects on others. This can also include scrupulosity, a type of OCD marked by a hyper-focus on following rules appropriately. Fortunately, this type of OCD is well understood and responds well to treatment. So back to me. It's best to get connected to a helping professional who can help guide you through this experience, help you to understand what's really going on and how to move toward wellness. But it can also be really hard to find a therapist who specializes in ERP, exposure and response prevention, which is the treatment that is well known to be effective for OCD. So let's start with some things you can do at home. First, to figure out if hit and run OCD is actually what we're going through, we'll just check back in with Manhattan CBT. If you spend time wondering, would I know if I ran someone over? Then you may have hit and run OCD. Other signs include anxiety at hitting bumps in the road, retracing your route looking for signs of an accident, checking the news in the days following driving looking for reports of an accident you caused, checking your car for new dents or blood stains that could have been caused by an accident, asking people in the car for reassurance that you didn't hit anyone while driving, spending a lot of time looking in the rearview mirror when driving to see if you've hit someone on the road, avoiding driving, getting yelled at by family and friends for driving too slowly out of concern for hitting pedestrians. So back to me again, as we've discussed many times on this podcast before, exposure and response prevention is the best treatment for OCD. And I'm going to read a little bit from a case study done by the International OCD Foundation to help show what treatment would specifically look like for this experience. So, okay, hang in there. It's, It's a little long, but I think it'll be helpful. After making a very detailed list of all of Don's obsessions and compulsions, we went on to what is called uh, to make what is called a hierarchy. We did this by making a separate list of all the situations we could think of that related to his OCD that made him anxious. He then rated each one of these situations from 0 to 100 in terms of how anxious they could potentially make him. He had a fairly large range with some things being as low as 10 and several things rated as 100, the worst fear he could imagine experiencing. Once his list was completed, we began the work of ERP therapy, which consists of giving Don homework assignments, starting with the lowest rated items on the hierarchy list. The assignment involved having him face situations that would cause him to confront his fears in a gradual way and then work up to the more challenging work. The purpose of this was to help him develop a tolerance for the doubt created by his thoughts so as to reduce their impact and thus reduce the anxiety they caused. It was also for the purpose of learning the truth of what would happen if he didn't do the compulsion. Further, it helped weaken the habits he had developed around doing his compulsions so that he could more successfully resist them. His assignments included things such as backing out of his driveway 
and then leaving his block without driving back to check or checking his rearview mirror. Next, not seeking reassurance from others. Next, resisting inspecting his car after going out for a drive. Not checking the news for accident reports. Not calling the police to question them about accident reports. Driving around crowded streets and parking lots without going back or checking in any way, especially at night when possible. Never stopping to get out and check for bodies. In addition to changing his behavior, I asked Don to consider responding to his obsessions in his head in a different way as well. For example, refraining from reviewing past driving events, agreeing instead that he might have actually hit and killed someone. Upon hearing sirens, agreeing with the obsession that it was emergency vehicles going to pick up the bodies of those he had hit, and generally agreeing with any thoughts about having hit people or animals. And finally, to go out of his way to actively trigger the obsessions as a way to confront them by reading articles about hit-and-run drivers being convicted and going to jail, watching videos of cars hitting people, viewing ads and reading articles on the hazards of distracted driving. It took Don eight months of steady daily work to finally gain control of his symptoms and to drive normally again. There were both good and difficult days along the way. No one gets well perfectly. But Don said, I feel like I got my life back. I'm really glad we didn't sell that car. So back to me. Remember that ERP might sound very terrifying or counterintuitive, right? But by labeling thoughts as OCD and simply letting them sit there without judgment, one of the examples uh, used was having the intrusive thought that sirens were coming from an ambulance on its way to collect the people Don had hit and simply agreeing, yep, that's what those sirens mean. And then continuing on without giving into the compulsive desire to turn around and double check, right? By doing this, We are actively extinguishing the intrusive thoughts by showing them that we don't find them important or valuable enough to seek reassurance. This is how we stop these thoughts. And while it's hard work, it really works. You can read the entire story of this case and others like it on the International OCD Foundation website. And please remember that we're praying for you. All right, everyone, that's it for today's episode. Remember, you can email, DM, or tweet your questions and situations if you'd like me to address them in a future episode. I'd be happy to keep you anonymous or not, whatever you want. Be sure to check out patreon.com slash grexley to see all the great things they've got going on over there and support the cause. Until next time, go easy on yourselves. Take care of yourselves. And if you feel like you're in a place where you can't even bring yourself to pray, don't worry. I'll be praying for you. And so will St. Dymphna. 